Today's passage will be from Revelation chapter 12, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Revelation chapter 12, starting from verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But a child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled in the wilderness where she had place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Uh, big warm welcome to everyone here. Thank you, Dan, for that big and deep and booming reading uh, of God's Word. Uh, my name is Stephen, uh, one of the pastors of the church, along with Ben and Randy. And uh, just to get out of the way really clearly, yes, these are new glasses for those who didn't see me last week. Um, I, uh, I was told um, by a few people that I look like Merv, Mervyn Chiang. <laughs> so I took a twins photo with him earlier today uh, just to see. We'll post it up later and get a poll going, I guess. Yeah. Uh, for those who um, haven't been with us uh, or are relatively new to us, a uh, big warm welcome. Uh, this is the, th- we're kind of returning now to the book of Revelation. We finished the book of Ezekiel last week. This is the third chunk of Revelation we're looking at this year. And uh, if, you're, if you happen to be going away or um, uh, missing, us, missing out on next year uh, with us here at church, we are going to finish Revelation next year, 17 to 22. Uh, so this third chunk here, chapter 12 to 14, 
uh, we'll be looking at in the next few weeks. Uh, so please head online, uh, check out the sermon archive. We did um, the first couple of chapters, then we did chapters five to seven, uh, and now we're skipping over to here to chapter 12. We're kind of hitting kind of the major points uh, in the book of Revelation. So now we get to return to it. Uh, for those who like to take notes, um, just note on the outline, uh, I'm going to be spending uh, more time on point 2B, uh, and I'm actually going to be skipping through point 3 uh, relatively quickly. So if you just notice that, um, that's what's happening there. Okay. Uh, let me pray, and uh, let me ask God to bless us as we look at his word. Uh, let me find that passage of the Bible. There we go. And uh, Okay, let me ask God to bless us now as we look at this word together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you again that you speak. Thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself through your word. Uh, you reveal yourself through us, to us in your word through uh, different means, different genres. Uh, you speak in multiple ways. And you give us a book like Revelation, uh, which may be confusing at first, but we ask for your Spirit's help. Uh, we ask for your Spirit's help to discern its meaning, to understand its context, and we also ask for your Spirit's help that I would speak clearly from this as well. And so we ask, uh, and we thank you that you speak, and, and help us now to receive this word and to respond to it with perseverance, uh, trusting all that Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In June of 2017, Senior Constable Russell Parker was called out to a home in White Rock. If you don't know where White Rock is, it's a suburb just south of Forest Lake and Inala in Brisbane. And it was a little bit of a strange call out. Apparently a woman had called the police because there were bad spirits in her house. Uh, not sure what to do with the woman's request, Constable Parker decided to improvise. I thought, well, gee whiz, I don't know just how to get rid of these, so I performed a bit of an exorcism and it worked. I identified that I could see them because I was particularly gifted with these sorts of things and the poor thing, she honestly believed that they were there, so I identified them based on her description. He then told the woman to wait outside for a moment while he went into the house to politely ask the spirits to leave and not come back. Constable Parker then said she thanked me profusely for that one because she was able to live there peacefully because the exorcist had been in there and gotten rid of them. Now, it's a little bit of a funny story to begin with. But you know, when it comes to Satan and devils, what instantly comes to your mind? Perhaps some of us have an image like that. It's all a bit silly. Or maybe we have this image in our heads. Darkness, the gnarled horns of a goat, leathery bat swings, and perhaps a man-like figure with the bottom half of a goat holding a pitchfork. Or when you think of Satan and devils, does the latest horror movie come to your mind? Movies like The Exorcist, right? the image of a young girl possessed by a demon, or, or other movies like that. Tales of possession and supernatural occurrences, or maybe you're older now and that sort of stuff is just all childish. Nobody really believes in devils and Satan and demons anymore, do they? Well, the Bible does. And the Bible speaks very clearly that Satan is a real enemy. He does have devils in his cohort. And he's more frightening than the images we have in our minds. He's more manipulative and deadly than any Hollywood movie might portray. And he is much more actively at work than our imaginations give him credit for. 
See, there is a reality beyond what we can see. There is a spiritual war which is being waged at this very moment. We cannot see the actors in this war, but we can see the effects of it all around us throughout history and even in our own lives in the present. In the present, we can see and we can feel the effects of this epic battle. But how do you fight an enemy that you cannot see? How do you fight when you can only see the destruction and not the perpetrator? Well, these are some of the questions that Revelation 12 unpacks for us this morning. Okay, so before we dive into our passage, let me uh, briefly recap what's happened in Revelation 1 to 11. It's my fun job to now try and recap 11 chapters of Revelation in two minutes. So here we go. Um, If you're taking notes, good luck. Uh, The book of Revelation is written to Christians. Remember, it's written to Christians to help them to conquer. Tough times are ahead, and John writes to them in a way to help them understand how tough things will be. So he uses a whole bunch of Old Testament imagery layered upon one another to explain the current day events that they're going through, as well as future events that the church will face. So in chapters 1 to 3, we saw, and we looked at this a few uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, we saw seven churches represent a letter to these seven churches, and these seven churches represent all churches across time, addressed about various issues within. Each of them is called to turn to Jesus and conquer by trusting him and following him, and most of these churches are also called to repent of the mess that they're in. Then in chapters 4 and 5, we're given a glorious vision of God ruling and reigning on his throne. No matter what is happening to the church, no matter what pain or persecution it suffers, these chapters give us the ultimate reality that Christians can hold on to. Jesus on the throne, ruling and reigning with his people surrounding the throne in eternal security and worship. And then between those chapters and through to chapter 11, we have a series of other images overlapping each other, telling us of God's judgment on the world, the unrepentance of the world and the ongoing persecution, uh, sorry, the ongoing proclamation of the gospel. So that's kind of the story so far. Despite the world's rejection of God, despite the persecution and killing of God's people, Jesus still reigns on his throne. The message of Jesus keeps going out into the world. And so we open up our passage, which begins a new section in the book of Revelation. So it's best not to see these chapters as happening chronologically after chapters 7, and 11, 7 to 11. Right? Rather, this is another glimpse into the reality of persecution of God's people, behind-the-scenes look into what is going on in the spiritual world. We open up chapter 12, and John sees a great sign. You see that there in chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, a great sign appearing in heaven. In chapters 12 to 15, John will see seven signs, and here is the first. He sees a woman clothed with the sun and the moon, with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She is pregnant and about to give birth to a child. Now, for anyone who knows this passage well enough, the most common reading of this woman and who this woman is, is Mary giving birth to the baby Jesus. But let me suggest that John has a different metaphorical woman in mind. See, John is borrowing from the Old Testament. One of the key features of the book of Revelation is that Revelation is saturated with allusions and images from the Old Testament. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you really need to know your Old Testament well, in particular, the book of Ezekiel. Isn't it ironic that we just did that? Anyway, so who is this woman to John? 
John sees this woman as representing the people of Israel, God's people. Now, you can see that in the description of her clothing. She's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. This image is picked up in, from Genesis 37. Genesis 37, that's the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph with that, that kid with the amazing multicolored coat, right? He's, got a, he's had a dream and it goes a little something like this. Then he dreamed another dream, that is Joseph, and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Isn't that a song? That's a musical, dream to dream. Anyway, um, behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, the sun and the moon represent his father and his mother, and the 11 stars represent his 11 brothers. It's a dream that is fulfilled in the future, towards the end of the book of Genesis, when his whole family moves from the land of Canaan to Egypt and are bowing down before him. And so John is borrowing this image of the sun, moon, and stars to say that this woman is representing Israel, God's covenant community. The same community who would give birth to the Messiah, a Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world. Then John sees a second sign in verse 3. This time he sees a red dragon. Now check out the description of the dragon in verse 3. He is red, he's got seven heads, he's got ten horns, and seven diadems. Now a diadem is like a crown on his heads. You know, one of the things about the book of Revelation is that this is apocalyptic writing, apocalyptic literature. It's a a genre of writing that none of us use today and is really unfamiliar. I was trying to think of what is the closest in terms of understanding what apocalyptic literature is like, and I I settled on the the, Studio Ghibli movies. If you've ever seen um, a Miyazaki uh, movie and all the strange kind of images, and it's a very different style of storytelling, Uh, That's probably the closest that we get in our world to what apocalyptic literature is like, right? There's lots of metaphors and strange, strange things going. So apocalyptic writing is marked by the use of Old Testament imagery. It's also marked by the use of color metaphors and number symbols. So the color red is often used as the color of war in Revelation. Seven is the number of wholeness, of completion. Seven heads and seven crowns is therefore a picture of whole and complete authority. Ten is a large number, a number of magnification. So horns are a symbol of power. And so seven heads, seven crowns, ten horns. We're being told that this dragon has total authority and immense power. And he is at war. In verse 4, we read that the dragon's tower sweeps a third of the stars out of the heavens and casts them down to the earth. Now, some have read this to mean that this dragon sweeps a third of the angels of heaven down to earth. That's, that's one reading. But another image is that this image could be borrowing from Daniel chapter 8, verse 10. Now, Daniel, the, uh, the prophet Daniel, Daniel was speaking about a very bad man named Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted and killed thousands of Israelites. And so in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, we read this. He, that is Antiochus Epiphanes, grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host of, of, and some of the stars he threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, in the context of Daniel chapter 8, the stars refer to the people of God. 
Now this again aligns with what we've already just seen about this woman who has a crown of 12 stars, you know, referring to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the dragon sweeping a third of, uh, of the stars out of heaven and casting them down to earth is probably another way of saying that the dragon will persecute and execute God's people. This dragon is very powerful. He's been hunting God's people. But now he sees the woman is giving birth and he knows that this is a special child. He knows that this child is important in God's plans and purposes. And so he turns his attention to this child, seeking to devour him. Who is this child? Verse 5, we're told he is the male, a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And again, we've got another callback here to the Old Testament. Uh, this time to Psalm 2, which speaks of God's Messiah, King. And to this King, God says, You shall break or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the child here in Revelation 12 is the long-awaited Messiah, King. The child is Jesus. Jesus who was born into the nation of Israel, ethnically a Jew. Jesus was born into this nation who was, which was given God's law so that he could live them out perfectly. In perfect obedience to God's laws, he would then become the perfect substitute for all of humanity and fulfill all the expectations of God's Messiah King. Satan knows he must stop this child. By the end of verse 5, before he can, do, he can do that, the child is whisked away, caught up to God and to his throne. Now, another aspect of apocalyptic literature is that time and chronology are often smushed together. Here at the end of verse 5, we skip from the birth of Jesus to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven to be with God, right? to sit on his throne. So between the words rod of iron but her, and but her child, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus takes place. Yeah, that's revelation for you. Verse 6, the drama continues as it seems that the dragon, missing his opportunity to take down the child, turns to the woman again. But she is also whisked away, fleeing into the wilderness where God takes care of her and provides protection for an interesting number of days, 1,260 days. On a 360-day year calendar, that works out to be three and a half years. Now, in other places in Revelation, you'll also see this time frame referred to as times, time, and half a time. Times, two, time, singular, one, and half a time, 0.5, all added up, equals three and a half years. Now, why three and a half years? Remember again that numbers are symbolic. Three and a half years is half of seven. Seven, the number of wholeness and completion. So three and a half then seems to be symbolic for a limited time, not a time that will last forever. So if you're a little bit confused about all the details, here's the summary for your notes, okay? There's a woman representing God's people. She gives birth to a child representing Jesus. The dragon with all his power and authority is unable to destroy Jesus. And Jesus is now at his father's side on the throne. And before the dragon can get to the woman, she is protected by God for a limited time. With me so far? Yep. All right. Clear as mud? All right. The chapter moves on to a new scene. Not a new sign. There's more of them to come. This is a new scene. War kicks off 
in verse 7, war in heaven. War breaks out between Michael and his angels against the dragon and his angels. But the dragon is defeated in verse 8, and there is no longer any place in heaven for him. And then in verse 9, we finally learn the identity of the dragon. He is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan himself. The ancient serpent who was there in the Garden of Eden, who deceived Adam and Eve, and not just the deceiver of them, but look at the middle of verse 9, he is the deceiver of the whole world. As he deceived Adam and Eve into rebellion against God, so he deceived everyone about the nature and character of God. He deceives this world to rebel against God, to live life your own way as, your own, as the ruler of your own life. Yes, sin takes, uh, is responsible for this as well, but Satan uses that and tempts that and pushes that uh, towards its ugly end. But now... His mouth is shut before God. He is defeated and thrown out of heaven and down to earth. Which kind of begs a little question and raises a little important aside. How is Satan in heaven to begin with? Well, for those who are around, remember back to April where this year when we worked through the book of Job. There we saw Satan appear before the throne of God in chapters 1 and 2. And he was appearing for duty. Go back and have a listen to that first sermon in Job where we learn that Satan appears before God's throne and is in heaven as part of God's governance of the world. But now here in Revelation, at the moment of his defeat by Michael and ultimate defeat by Jesus' death and resurrection, there is no more room for Satan in heaven. Being thrown down to the ground is a picture of utter defeat. So, of course, the angel cries out in victory. And what a gloriously loud voice cries out. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Jesus has died. And more than that, risen to life. And for those who trust in Jesus' salvation, from God, uh, those who trust in Jesus, salvation from God's wrath has come. For those who have faith alone in the gospel, the, they, the experience of the power of forgiveness and reconciliation with God has come. Jesus, the King, has risen to life. And so his kingdom and authority are stamped with the approval of God. What a glorious cry. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. The accuser has been thrown down and silenced. And now God's people can conquer Satan as well. They can silence his accusations. How? Have a look at verse 11. Notice two steps. The first step is by the blood of the lamb. Some of us know this very well. You know the gnawing voice of guilt when you have stupidly and rebelliously sinned again. I know that voice so well. You've wondered in your heart of hearts, how can God ever love me and care for me when I've done this again? You've been Christian for 5, 10, 20, 40 years even. And here you are again in the pits of sinful muck. And you hear the accuser's voice saying, what are you going to say to God now? How is he ever going to take you back? 
what would you, what would you answer? Would you stand there and say, well, oh God, really sorry. I, look, I'll, I'll try harder next time. I'm, I'm going to not stumble. I promise, I promise. No. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We silence the voice of the accuser by trusting the blood of the Lamb. This is the only ground for our assurance. Now, friends, do you know this? Do you know this? We know that Jesus has died for the sins of the world, but do you know he's actually died for you? If you have this assurance, then we can conquer and silence the accuser by letting this news be known. Number two, notice in verse 11, they conquer him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Trusting and believing Jesus' death for you is one thing, and to trust and believe necessarily flows out in telling others of it as well. Your testimony, what Christ has done for you, why you believe, why you have come to believe and why you continue to believe and trust the blood of the Lamb. You don't have to be a trained preacher to do that. You can just sit down with someone over a cup of coffee or tea, I don't discriminate, and you can say, hey, can I explain for a minute or two why I'm a Christian? I explain what life was like before trusting Jesus. I explain why Jesus is the king. Explain why you believe following him is the best. And let me give you a tip. Don't make it vague about God working in your life. Make it specific about Jesus. Talk about what Jesus' life means for you. Talk about what Jesus' kingship over your life means for you. And talk about Jesus, the lamb who was slain for you. Come back with me in verse 11. Notice the final reason why God's people conquer the accuser. They conquer because they loved not their lives even unto death. They loved their lives. They did not love their lives even unto death. Uh, When I read through a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs, I'm always challenged by the faithfulness of Christians to the point of death. Reading about this story, I can't remember her name. I should have written it down. Um, But the story in the early church, shortly after the apostles had died, uh, of a woman who just kept testifying to the faith and would not recant. She was thrown to the lions a number of times, about three times, and they didn't touch her. So they tortured her and put her through some unspeakable torture. And even at the point of immense pain, she kept exhorting her torturers to repent and turn to Christ. And when they couldn't get her to like, turn her back on Jesus, they finished her off with a sword. I read that story and I'm like, gee, it makes complaining about sitting in a chair with a sore back really silly. But one thing I notice as I read through these stories is that each of these men and women, they're not superstars. They were not evangelical celebrities with big book deals and preaching to thousands. They were average people like you and me. They loved not their lives even unto death. And that's not special to them. 
It's what every Christian is called to do, to lay down your life, take up your cross and follow Jesus, even to death for his sake. Believers conquer the accuser by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, because they do not love their lives more than following Jesus. Now, in response in heaven to this great news, uh, in verse 12, the response is rejoicing, to sing and shout for joy at the great gospel news. But on earth, it's a different matter. The flip side is woe to the earth and the sea. The devil comes down to earth in great wrath. He is defeated. His time is short, and he will thrash about taking down as many as he can. You see this next as he turns his attention back to the woman in verse 13, pursuing her in a series of quick montages where we see his wrath in action. The serpent pursues, but like last time, the woman is able to flee off, flee from the serpent in verse 14. She's given two wings of an eagle to fly off to the wilderness. Again, a, an image borrowed from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. And again, she is nourished in the wilderness for three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. Her, her time in hiding will not last forever. Seeing her run off into the wilderness, the serpent opens his mouth and a great river comes pouring forth a flood to try and destroy her. Floods, we know, are destructive. Uh, anyone who remembers the 2011 floods here in Brisbane will know this well. Uh, back then, the waters rose relatively slowly, but they destroyed everything in their path. If you drive along Coronation Drive, you'll pass this structure on the riverside. Everyone seen it? It's this old, rundown uh, kind of place, a series of metal poles holding up a dirty roof. Now, if you didn't know, this was once the best new restaurant in Brisbane in 2010 called Drift Cafe. Uh, Steph and I actually ate at this restaurant two months before the floods, and it was fantastic. Unfortunately, during the floods, because of an error, they were unable to float the restaurant. It's actually a floating restaurant. Uh, they actually had to keep it for as in a, a, a series of errors. They had to keep it locked in place. And so instead of floating on the water, the water rose and completely tore the insides and the deck away. The destruction captured on news cameras as owners helplessly looked on. That's what the serpent wants to do. A flood comes out of his mouth, seeking to destroy the woman. But then in verse 16, the earth comes to her rescue. Opening up its own mouth, the waters are swallowed up. John is clearly telling his readers that God will not let Satan destroy his people. So, unable to destroy the woman, the dragon switches focus. Verse 17, he turns his attention to the woman's offspring. The first offspring was the Messiah, King Jesus, and now her new offspring are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Christians are now in the firing line cast down from heaven, unable to devour the child, unable to destroy the woman, Satan now declares war on all Christians. Friends, I don't know what you think of when you hear about this Satan business. You know, does that image of the red devil, the horns and bat wings, maybe that comes to your mind. Well, that is rubbish fairy tale stuff. Satan, pictured here in Revelation 12, is much more evil. 
much more dangerous and much closer than we give him credit for. He is a defeated foe, that is for sure. But like a dangerous lion or bear caught in a trap, he will continue to lash out. If you're not aware of the name Steve Irwin, he is a national treasure. Uh, Steve Irwin was a wildlife expert and educator. And I remember in one video he was trapping a five-meter-long crocodile that had become a pest up in North Queensland. Uh, they set up a trap for him and he was caught, completely defeated. But Steve knew better than anyone else that a trapped crocodile is the most dangerous because they would thrash about and, caught, and could cause injury and even death, even though it was caught. Satan is the same. He is a defeated foe. Paul joyfully proclaims that at, uh, that at the cross he has been disarmed, all of his demonic friends with him. Jesus has triumphed over them at the cross, putting them to open shame. Satan is a defeated enemy. He will not win the war. Jesus has won the war. But in his defeat, he will thrash and rage, and he will wage war against Christians. Church, uh, Jesus has promised that not even the gates of hell will prevail against his church. So Satan knows that he cannot destroy the church in its entirety. Right? We should never fear that. Jesus will always ensure that there are faithful believers who will be alive and pass around the gospel to future generations. Satan cannot destroy the church, but he can pick off Christians one by one. This year I turned 20. This is the, my 20th year as a Christian. Ah, that makes better sense. Uh, I grew up in a Buddhist home. Uh, and during university, I got chatting with a friend. And we dialogued a fair bit. And I came to realize, he took me through Christianity Explained. And I came to realize that Jesus made more sense of life, meaning, and morality. And so 20 years ago in May, I gave my life to Christ. And in those 20 years since then, I've seen my fair share of camps and retreats. And one of the main things to do at a camp, of course, is to take a big group photo. But after a while, when you go back and look at some of these photos in the past, it can be quite disheartening. So you take a look at an old photo, and you begin to wonder where people are. Some you're not sure where they're at. Others you know for sure have stopped walking with the Lord. You know that as much as, as sinful as they are, Satan has also picked them off. And for various reasons, right? The one brother you know who has stopped with the Lord because even though he spent all that time in youth group with you and he did all the same Bible studies that you did, he just never really understood the gospel and he fell in love with earning money. Another sister you know has stopped following Jesus because she yearned for a marriage relationship so much that she married a non-Christian. And now her family is more important than anything else. Another brother stopped following the Lord because life just got really busy. He stopped coming to church and fellowship group altogether. And every time I drop him a message to see how he's going, he leaves me on red. Another sister has stopped following the Lord because the persecution she received from her family was too much. Story after story of those who have been picked off. 
I can see some of these group photos and kind of figuratively put a cross over their faces of people who have walked away. And I sadly know that in the coming years, I will need to add more crosses, even over some whom I call friends. And then there are faces that I see, and it's encouraging. This one brother who was in, only in our church for a few years, but is now in ministry training in Singapore. This other girl who moved to Babylon, I mean Sydney, for work. Right? Really sad to see her go, but she married, when she was down there, she married a godly guy and is actively serving in the church down there, even recommending our church to those moving up to the promised land. Right? <laughs> Uh, I know another guy who came to our church, really burnt out, really burnt out from his previous church, but is now actively serving again and persevering. Another guy who was a teenager at Cooper's Plains Youth Group. You know, when uh, we had our last combined youth group with them, uh, SALT here at St. Lucia and CIA over at Cooper's Plains, the last combined camp was 2011. When I was there at that camp, gosh, I'm old, um, he was there as a teenager. Right? I didn't keep up with him, obviously, different churches, but didn't know exactly where he ended up. And a few months ago, we're sitting together, me and this guy, and he's helping me to plan this combined youth event. And he's super enthusiastic and encouraging. Now, the people I've described, they're not superstars of the faith. They are probably not going to write books or speak at international conferences in front of thousands of believers. And while I don't know all the details of their lives, I do know three things. Number one, they continue to trust the Lamb's blood. There is little or no doubt in my mind that their faith is grounded in the work of Jesus for them. And they continue to follow Jesus, love his church, and serve him in whatever ways they can. Number two, they continue to witness to the Lamb. And again, they're not necessarily all gifted evangelists like Billy Graham. But they speak about Jesus. Their lives are lived for him. And Jesus is not far from their lips. Even in their personal struggles, they'll keep pointing people to Jesus and his great work for them. Three, they do not love their lives more than they love following Jesus. Living for Jesus requires sacrifice and they are willing to do it. They are willing to make the hard choices in following Jesus and obeying his word. They count the cost and they consider the sacrifice worth it. But don't think for a moment that life is therefore easy for them. No, Satan wages war against them. He does whatever he can to make life difficult enough that you would begin to doubt God's goodness and doubt Jesus' worthiness. He crushes some people with weights that are hard to bear so that they might turn away. But on, on the flip side, he also does something different. He can make the world look more attractive with more glitz and more glamour and more professionalism than our rustic little old church can provide. So, you know, on this end, you know, I've talked to believers who wrestled hard to turn down job offers with more prestige and more money because they knew it would keep them out of serving at church. That was a hard wrestle. I've seen some believers on this end as well who felt that pull of the world, but instead 
they opted to buy a second-hand Japanese car instead of a new German luxury car, even though they could afford it, because they knew they didn't want to get sucked into that wealthier lifestyle. I've seen the struggle on the flip side over here. I've seen the struggle of believers who have chronic pain. Not just the niggles that, and sore joints that come and go, but people both young and old who live with pain levels constantly at a five or six, and then on some days it creeps up to a seven or eight regularly enough. And they persevere through that. I've seen the struggles of believers wrestling with mental illness, with depression, anxiety, and a whole host of other struggles. I've walked with couples struggling to conceive, wanting children, and yet unable to do it. I remember one woman saying, not to me, I heard it through another minister, but I knew this woman as well, and she said to this, my friend, I want children so much, but why does my body not allow me? And this was after her sixth or seventh um, you know, aborted um, pregnancy. I've seen struggles, uh, I've seen singles struggling with their singleness, couples struggling with their marriages, parents struggling with wayward children, people with strained relationships with their own parents. I've had, at crucial moments in our church's life, I've noticed, you know, when we embark on a, a new sermon series that we think will be really fruitful for all of us, we start planning for new services or a church plan, or we begin plans for something good like training or a discipleship program. At those times in our church's life, I've noticed people in our church start to take hits. Ben gets injured, right? Um, but, you know, if you talk to Ben about it too, you, he'll note that his emotions go down with that because the physical injury takes its toll. Always roughly around the same time. I've been hit with my own mental struggles. I've seen serious sickness hit multiple families at the same time, all roughly when we're trying to do more for the kingdom. See, in all of this, a war is being waged. One we cannot see but one we can certainly feel the effects of. A dragon is flexing his muscles and venting his wrath, focusing on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, but he will not win. He cannot win and he knows he will not win. He is a defeated foe. And so let us keep being faithful to the one who wins. Let us Keep following what he says. Let us look to the left and to the right this morning and make sure that everyone here in our church perseveres to the end. Let us consider, let us conquer by trusting the blood of Jesus, by the word of our testimony, and let us not love our lives more than living for Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This word that reveals a reality that we do not see, but a reality that impacts our lives. So help us to see this with faith. Help us to see Satan at war against your people, against us, with all of its different effects. 
but help us to conquer him by the blood of your son alone and by testifying to that day to day, living for Christ and not for ourselves. And Father, help us to remember as difficult and trying as times may get, your son Jesus has won. And someday he will return and we will win as well. Help us to trust that, to not give in, to keep persevering through. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen.